Today we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel. And this is actually element 5H. We, element 5 is all about Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man. And uh, so it's kind of an introduction to the theological study of Christology. Christology, who is Christ? And uh, today we'll be looking at uh, the temptation in the wilderness. Uh, before we do, I want to read Luke's account of the temptation in the wilderness, along with some parallel verses uh, that are sometimes uh, used uh, comparatively with the temptation in the wilderness. And on the back of the page, we will not read it, but you have Matthew's account of the temptation in the wilderness. Luke 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever, whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Genesis 3, 1-7 Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Thank you, Jason. 
So we can't, of course, uh, continue to do too much review all the time. We've been doing this series. This is the 28th lesson uh, called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. Uh, Many have pointed out in our day that uh, the gospel progressively since the Civil War has gotten reductionist, 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 so that only a few elements out of the way the apostles would have shared the gospel are left in American Christianity, and uh, the more Bible-believing and fundamental it is, the more that's true, uh, the more that it's just been reduced to a few bare-bone skeletal outline points. And so uh, hopefully today I'll actually uh, show us how knowing that Christ was subject to real temptations, yet he never sinned, is part of the gospel, and you need that in your heart and mind every day. So we've been looking at these various aspects of Christology, and today we're going to look at the uh, uh, temptation of Christ, and I want to kind of uh, focus on three major themes, the third of which I have uh, eight sub-points for. So uh, the first one is is, uh, called the idea of temptability versus impeccability. And so it raises the question, if Jesus was the Son of God, and if he was working according to God's predestined and foreknown plan, and therefore, the Hebrews 13.20, there was uh, the blood of the eternal covenant uh, that God in, uh, foreknows and predestines all things, and as, they, as the apostles preached in Acts, when, he, when they were uh, confronting the Sanhedrin, uh, about the fact that they had crucified the Christ. Let's try to get everybody settled in here. Got quite a lot of lead arrivers here today. Okay, so uh, when they were kind of, I um, uh, lost my train of thought. When they were um, continuing to, if you, you look, one of the major themes in the book of Acts that Jason's been bringing out on Thursday nights is they are constantly preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and they're constantly making the case that it was the religious leaders of Israel that had crucified him. And that's a case that always was made that's not made so much today because religion will always crucify the Lord. Religion hates God. Many a person going to church today is, is actually has more hate in their God than in their heart toward God than, than uh than, than you would know, because what religion does is uh, religion wants to justify itself before God, wants to uh, have some self-righteous, self-performance uh, achievement base to stand before God, and therefore uh, have a basis for judging others harshly instead of standing before God purely naked on his grace. So Romans 10, Paul says, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own. There's a whole lot of that in Christian churches today. I I suggest to you that uh, there's more of that in your heart than you know, and that part of the ongoing sanctification process that God takes you through is to give that all up and walk totally in the power of his resurrection, totally by the power of his Holy Spirit, totally as a free gift, uh, 
having no, no basis for uh, your own self standing before God, and you'll know by how merciful you're, you are towards those who don't measure up. And you, because whenever you're any kind of religious-based, performance-based, uh, self-justifying, self-aggrandizing, self-actualizing, and all the self-self stuff that took over American psychology around 120 years ago and, and uh, has permeated the church so deeply, Whenever you have any of that, you won't be very gracious towards sinners. And you'll have a way overestimation of yourself and your standing before God. So these things are really important. So the question is, is Christ really temptable since it was the foreordained, pre-known plan of God, uh, as the, again, as the apostles mentioned, that, that Christ uh, would not sin? And the answer is yes, it is. He was really temptable. His temptations were real. He faced every kind of temptation that you faced. And that's why he's not only able to be sympathetic uh, to your temptations, it's way beyond that. You know, we have a tendency to stop there. And we are, oh, Jesus understands. I, you know, it's, it's a great step forward in your relationship with God when you can realize that I'm subject to all kinds of temptations. Uh, and God's not mad at me about that. I can go to him to find help in time of need. You know, I think it was St. Augustine who said, uh, said uh, much more famous and worthy of being famous than uh, the quote I'm about to give you. <clears throat> he said, uh, you, you won't really begin to understand the depth of your sin until you start making a serious commitment to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then as you begin to pursue God deeply, and the more you begin to pursue God, and the hungrier you are for God, the more you eat of God, the hungrier you get. Any kind of appetite, the more you feed it, the more it grows. And so the more you drink of the power of the Holy Spirit and, and taste of his resurrection, uh, the more hungry for God you get, and the more you do, the more you realize the depth of your own sin. And you won't really know the depth of your sin till you set about to become uh, a very zealous, violent, active, take the bull by the horns, grow in Christ Christian. My quote uh, which is less famous because I've never had as large of an audience and because it certainly doesn't deserve that much attention, is I can stand up to anything except temptation. Uh, so uh, you can see why that's not going to catch on. Most people aren't going to adopt that as their motto. <laughs> I can withstand anything except temptation. But um, um, the truth of the matter is, is it's a step forward when you begin to realize that we have a merciful and faithful high priest, as Hebrew says, and we can draw near to find help in time of need. But that's not the only message of that. Because the real message of that is that person died to take your the wrath of God for you. He died not only to take the judgment that was due us, but he died to take the sin nature that led us to that judgment. And so when you exchange your life for Christ's life, it's way more than a sinner's prayer. 
It's, it's a totally renouncing any self-reliance and self-dependence, and it's a living out of the power of his resurrection. It's a daily living in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in, around, and through me. In the life that I live in this body, I live by faith, which is more than intellectual ascent. It means clinging to, relying on, to being a disciple of, taking up your cross and denying yourself and following. It means I live by an active relationship out of his power, that I'm seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places, living in the power of his resurrection. And when you begin to experience that kind of power, and that kind of attitude change, and that kind of motivation, that is the new birth. That is the Christian life. And so um, this whole temptability versus impeccability thing gets into that. So let's get into some of the scripture for it. That's kind of an overview. Sort of preached it before I read some of the scriptures. Um, so hopefully you're familiar with all these scriptures quite a bit. Hebrews 4, 15, 16, we've t alluded to these verses, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted at all things, yet without sin. Luke 4, 1, 1 and 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the devil in the wilderness. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the new modern translation. No, uh, I like to do that just to point out, it was God himself, he, according to Matthew 4, 1 and Luke 4, 1, that led Jesus to be tempted. Guess what? I remember as a young Christian once, I was going through a lot of difficulties, and my mom was a wonderful Christian lady who taught me how to cast out demons and lots of things, and, uh, and she had become a Christian seven years before me, and I had been quite estranged from my parents in my drug, crazy, wild, rebellion years, and so when I came to Christ, my mom was the one who taught me about the baptism in the Spirit and spiritual gifts and gave me my first nine different translations of the Bible that I required my first month of being a Christian, had to have, I had to have a lot, lots of Bibles, but, uh, uh, and, uh, so, uh, you know, I remember talking to her and I'm like, why am I going through so much difficulty? And she mentioned a particular well-known speaker at the time. And she said, don't you remember when he, you know, gave some kind of a stand up or raise your hand kind of thing. If you really want all that God has for you and all that stuff, she goes, you shouldn't have prayed with him if you weren't going to take it seriously. But <laughs> that's why all these troubles have come upon you. God's brought them. Now, of course, we bring a fair number of troubles on ourselves. But, uh, you know, the whole, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. If if his temptations were real, it wouldn't have recorded that. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, I love these verses. In the days of his flesh, just meaning not his sin nature, you have to look at which Greek word is used. In the days that he had a human body, that he was incarnated among us um, before his resurrection body, he offered up both prayers and supplications, which are different Greek words, uh, but it, with loud crying and tears to the one God, the Father, able to save him from death. Because had he sinned, he would have been subject to death forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. He would have been cut off from fellowship with his Father. And he was heard because of his piety, 
And the Greek word there can mean piety in the Latin sense of pietas, but it, but it means because of his fear of God. Because of his much higher honoring God-centered view of things than we have today. Uh, his, his having his focus correct, whereas he's seeing things from a much bigger point of view, God's point of view. Uh, unlike the man-centered Christianity that we are struggling to break out of today. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So he's not just your source in the sense that he's sympathetic, but he's the power you need. And the word salvation is not agreeing to the right fundamental doctrines. It's, a, it's, it's actually sozo in the Greek and soteria in the, na, in, in the noun, I said Greek, in the verb form, in soteria in the noun form. And it means practical, real, concrete deliverance from the power of evil, from the power of your temptations, from demon spirits, from the sin nature, from the power and pull of the world system. Jesus delivered people from real things. He wasn't an abstract, theoretical sinner's prayer at the altar deliverer. He was the real rescuer. And he rescued them from real enemies, and still does, that are too powerful for us. And frankly, you're not ready to be rescued till you realize that the enemies are too powerful. Until you realize that you need own that your only hope is to press in every minute of every hour of every day. You know that Christian song, "I need Thee every hour," into the power of His resurrection. So, these verses bring out that Jesus really was tempted. That should be a great comfort to you. I remember uh, one of the first uh, pe- people when I was first asked by the elders of the Bowling Green Church to lead the campus ministry. And, you know, here I am like five years old in Christ uh, and like 22 years old or 21 years old or something like this, trying to, uh, you know, lead other people to Christ and disciple them. And I guess when you're 21 or 22, like, and they're 18, it seems like it's like (laughs) this big gap or something. But uh, so I'm trying to help people get started. And I remember a young man going, was, did Jesus have real sexual temptations? Yes. Did he, you know, did he get tired? Do you think he was ever tempted to be a little bit cranky with the disciples uh, as they were walking along discussing who was the greatest? (laughs) Do you think he ever felt like, didn't we cover this already? (laughs) Uh, uh, in fact, he, Jesus is the ultimate father because shepherding people and being a father are one and the same skill. So now with this, there's this doctrine called impeccability. And impeccable, this means <clears throat> that he would be incapable of sin, not able to sin. And this has been a debate that's waged in the church for centuries. So um, Hebrews 13, 20, we've already mentioned, talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. They, uh, some, some theologians separate out the covenant theologians uh, who, who don't 
frankly, get it quite as far as, but they they get it way more than the dispensationalist theologians by far. But it, they're they're taking a couple steps back to the apostolic mindset, but not far far enough to actually be biblical. Uh, but the, to uh, to understand that God is a covenant making, covenant keeping God. There's eight aspects of all biblical covenants and and all this stuff, and it's all according to one eternal covenant. They theolo- unfortunately, most covenant theologians break that aspect of the covenant down into what they call the covenant of redemption. That is the covenant that existed in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God himself would come and be a man, Son of God, and would become a man, and, and that he would uh, die to redeem man, and that God would send the Holy Spirit, whose job it would be to prepare him a bride, and, and that once the kingdom has been completely brought in subjection to to the Son, that he would deliver it all back up to the Father. That all uh, theologians break down as a separate covenant, and then they'll take the covenant with Adam and call that the covenant of works, which it was not. Anytime you hear that, you know they're, they're, they're taking a definite couple steps better than dispensationalism to understanding the Bible, but they're still not getting it. And what they're saying is, uh, because the covenant with Adam was by grace. Adam didn't, con- he didn't con- uh, create himself. He, all covenants have uh, requirements for obedience. They're all by grace, and the obedience can only be achieved by the power of his grace. And all covenants have sanctions, that is, blessings and rewards for, for obedience, and judgments and chastisements and dis- disciplines for disobedience. And so the covenant with Adam said, in the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Now, he didn't die physically that day, but he surely did die, as did Eve. And, and they brought, uh, this, they brought uh, all of mankind into a place where all of us are born spiritually dead, subject to a power called sin. And we all had to be redeemed. And that was, that was just another step in the unfolding of the great eternal covenant, which is the new covenant, which is a, a fulfillment of all the covenants. I wish I could go in more to that. We've taught on that other places. Uh, go, to, go to my Kingdom of God series and look at the teachings on covenant. But in any case, because of this covenant, is it possible that Jesus was actually able to sin? So Acts 4, 27 and 28, the apostles are preaching, as we've already alluded to, and they're kind of, as they always did, stick, sticking it to the Sanhedrin because of major theme of the New Testament, Jesus, uh, from Matthew 21 to Matthew 25, is the culmination of his great conflict with Israel, where he says the kingdom's going to be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Earlier in Matthew 16, he said, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my called out congregation and assembly, in, which means in contradistinction to Israel, which is, had been Moses' called out congregation. They had been gods, of course, through Moses. But now the God through Christ is going to build a new congregation, and he's going to take the kingdom away from those who don't produce the fruit of it, who've killed one prophet after another prophet, uh, who now are finally going to kill his son, and he prophesies 40, 40 years until the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, 
that this generation will not pass away till all these things have been fulfilled. Matthew 24 is not about the end times. It's about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's called the Mount Olivet Discourse. And he prophesies well, one generation, 40 years, until all of this is fulfilled. The church is going to go through a 40-year birthing period while Israel's going through a last 40 years uh, of, of judgment. And so um, the, the apostles are constantly reiterating the message of Christ given on the Mount Olivet Discourse and saying, you delivered up the Christ to sinful, ungodly man, men, and you killed him and nailed him to a cross. And God is going to bring uh, his, the blood of Christ on you. By whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. This, God's going to enforce the covenant of Noah, the Noahic covenant, on you. That's the whole message of the New Testament. That's why Paul later says, Judgment has come on them to the uttermost. The Judaizers who went from town to town, harassing the apostles, arresting the apostles, and so forth, it was the final straw. They had re rejected Ezra, Nehemiah, Elijah, Samuel, you name it, Jer uh, Isaiah. One messenger after another, they had had refused their message, stoned them to death, killed them, thrown them into pits, sawn them into whatever. And then later, as religion always wants to do, a few generations later, they built their tombs and honored them as like, if we had been living in the days of our father, we would have received them. No, you wouldn't have because you're not receiving the one standing before you who is God himself. It all gets down to, that's why Jesus said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and you won't see me again. In other words, you won't actually, you won't go beyond religion to actually knowing and perceiving God until you receive those who God sends to you with the stumbling block of the gospel to open up your, real, your eyes to the reality of the kingdom. Your response to God is your response to those people who bring a message you wouldn't like to hear. Not a popular message. So again, they say whatever your hand and your plan, purpose has predestined to take place. Purpose is the plan is the end. I think it's the ESV and purpose is the NKJV and the New American Standard, whatever. But so God, so this issue we need to move on is simply this. Um, in Western the theology, one of our weaknesses is that we have to kind of always reduce something that to, to what human logic can get its mind around. Now, the gospel is not unreasonable nor illogical, but it's transrational and as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2, it takes spiritual insights, spiritual words to, to understand spiritual things. It takes a special vocabulary just to wrestle with these ideas. And we have to hold not to what you get all kind of people who are upset about the idea of foreknowledge and predestination, 
but it's in hundreds of verses. It's, it's in thousands of verses. It's like the main frame of the whole Bible. If God doesn't predestine and foreknow all things, then he's not God. That's why we have such a man-centered lower view of God, because that cuts against the grain, because that means God foreknew and predestined your response. But uh, I, that's why I think Tim Keller has it right. He's one of the few pastors out there that I really think is worth listening to uh, is because his favorite theologians are Jonathan Edwards, who basically is all about predestination, foreknowledge, sovereignty, and, and so the predestined, determined plan of God, and C.S. Lewis, who is all about human responsibility, culpability, and man's choice and free will, because it's a mystery. You are responsible for your decisions. And uh, I think it was either Moody or Spurgeon, one of the 19th century guys, uh, who basically said, you know, as you, as you enter the, the kingdom through Christ, uh, not just in heaven, but in a sense on one side of the door of Christ, it says, for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. And when you get through, you look back, it says predestined and elected and foreknown. And if the truth is, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him but in such a way that you're still culpable. You're still morally responsible for your response. And God will bring you every action. And, you know, in Ecclesiastes, I love Ecclesiastes because at the end he says, in the end, fear God and keep his commandments. God will bring you into account for every action, every idle word, every motivation. So what we, we do a great injustice when we don't understand that what I call divine tensions, all truth, if you look at any heresy, any heresy is when Christians get to a point where they uh, overemphasize one aspect of truth without emphasizing its counterbalancing, seemingly paradoxical opposite truth. So you have you actually have a, a, a pseudo call called apostolics today, and apostolics are called the Jesus-only cult, and they believe Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because Paul says that in Christ dwelt all the fullness of deity. And so, like, if you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you need to be rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ only and this kind of stuff. Um, because they don't understand that, yes, Jesus is fully God, and yes, the Father is fully God, and yes, the Holy Spirit is fully God. Together, we worship him uh, with the Father and the Son. And Bible math is one plus one plus one equals one. And so this, this mystery of impeccability, in one sense, it was foreordained that Jesus would not sin. In another sense, in a very real sense, his temptations were quite real, and you need to know that. I can see that this... All right, so... Uh, Let's flip over and let's get into as much of the wilderness temptation as we can. Uh, so uh, Luke's account, Matthew's account, the only thing I, is sometimes compared to the Genesis 3 account and the First John 2 that I had Jason read uh, at the beginning this morning. And Luke, please note that Luke reverses the order of the second and third temptation from Matthew. Otherwise, they're pretty much the same. There's a couple minor little differences, like in Matthew, it just says when the, the devil had defend, uh, finished every temptation, 
he left Jesus, and uh, Luke adds, until an opportune time, implying he wasn't giving up yet. He was going to try again later. <laughs> so keep your guard up, uh, which is important insight. Uh, and when you overcome by the grace of God and you tap into the power of his resurrection and, and uh, you're starting to get some victory, one of the, the, the easiest the things that every young Christian does is you subtly start changing. You're desperate for God's grace, and you're crying out to God, and you know you can't overcome, and you can't do anything about changing your heart about fear or lust or procrastination or, or being afraid to have people and getting involved in social relations. Whatever you're struggling with, you, uh, you, you're totally crying out to God for his grace, and then he starts to give you victory, and, and little by little, that victory starts to become in your character and a way of life, and it becomes a habit. And subtly, deep down in your heart, you start shifting to, you know, God, I think I got this from now. Okay. Uh, you know, and uh, that's that, what, that was what the Galatians did, and that you begin to be perfected by performance or by works. So it's important that uh, you realize that when it seems like he's finished every temptation and so forth, and the temptation... It season is, seems to have lifted a while. Don't worry, he'll be back. <laughs> Just even though he didn't, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger promised he'd be back. General Patton Schwarzenegger promised he'd be back, and Jesus was the ultimate. I'll be back, and uh, and uh, uh, so there's some famous "I'll be backs" in recent history and ancient history. The devil didn't promise, but you can count on it. He'll be back. Uh, looking for an opportune time. And if you start uh, shift, shifting your base of reliance to, I got this, back to where you were before you came to Christ, uh, and all of us do that, that's part of the sanctification journey. Uh, you know, uh, what's, there's a movie where, he, oh no, it was Ronald Reagan, who uh, when he was, when Ronald Reagan was almost assassinated as he was, uh, they were taking him in the sur, you know, like rushing him into surgery. He s said to his wife, "I forgot the duck." Uh, and I used to work in a radiator factory, and for the life of me, I don't know why truck radiators, big, heavy truck radiators, uh, for you know, for, uh, and they would uh, put the truck radiators on this uh, chain system that went overhead, and it traveled all the way through the factory. And they'd take them off and do this and this and put it back on and, and so forth. And eventually it would end up in, at the total opposite corners of the factory from where the final testing and the crating was done. I don't know why. But for some reason, they had these radiators travel about this high. And so, like, you always had to be careful that you weren't standing in the line and that the next one was going to hit you in the head. <laughs> and I've always thought that that was a great uh, sample of, like, how we are with God because we get the victory and so forth, and we're so humble, we're on our knees and seeking God, and then we're like, I got this, and then <laughs> the next truck right here hits you. <laughs> like, uh, I, I forgot to duck. I forgot to humble. God has a way of helping you if you forget to humble yourself. He loves you, and he will, uh, he will let you see the fruit of your own power and strength. All right, so let's get into this. Uh, number, some some uh, important biblical insights from Jesus' 40 days. First of all, 40 days of fasting and preparation for ministry. Uh, there are many, many examples of 40 days and 40 years throughout the scriptures. Here are some of them. Moses fasted 40 days on Mount Zion before receiving the law. 
And as we know, Jesus is, Romans 10.4 says that Jesus is the telos of the law. He's the goal of the law. He's the end. He's the completion. He's the purpose. Because the law actually came, comes out of his nature. The law and Jesus are one and the same because Jesus never committed adultery. Because Jesus is the ultimate, have, I have no, <clears throat> no gods before besides God my Father. I always do that which is pleasing to him. He's the ultimate. He had no grave in inches. He always honored the Lord's day. <coughs> he grew up in subjection to his parents. He always honored his father and mother because the law actually came out of him and his nature. So just as Moses fasted 40 days before receiving the law, Jesus fasted 40 days before he gave us the power to keep the law by the power of his life. Israel spent 40 days spying out the promised land. Remember, only two spies came back with a positive report, uh, Joshua and Caleb. The rest came back, there's giants in the land, and oh, my God. N-E-M, N-E-M, it's a twister. Uh, the, the, the others came back, and they had been converted to dispensational premillennialism. They had basically said, uh, we can't win. God will have to come back. And uh, they'd been, they had d- developed a reductionist gospel that's escapistic and says, you know, God can't win in this time-space history situation. It's this fear and cowardice. That's why it says outside the New Jerusalem is the fearful and the unbelieving. That is the root of modern theology in the Bible-believing church. So as Israel spent uh, 40 days spying out the land, so Jesus spent 40 days spying out the land, and then he walked out in the power of the Spirit and began to proclaim, repent, the kingdom of God is right here now, at hand, in your midst. And he began to cast out demons, heal the sick, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He began to make disciples, build his community, as we're going to look at in subsequent weeks, and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which is to now. Today is the day of real salvation. Don't get this, we can't do anything till we get to heaven stuff. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, failing temptations until an entire generation died. Now, there's a message in that because your old nature has to completely die and it's only your new nature that's going to enter the land of God. And Jesus' fast points to that because he had to rely by the power of the Spirit like you do on his Father for grace to stay the filial or faithful, loving, loyal, covenantly loyal son. Filial, that's what filial means. It's a word we should use more in English, but we don't. Uh, second, uh, second sub-point out of uh, these eight points is, uh, unlike Adam in the garden, the second Adam passed all the tests in the wilderness. So all through the Bible, there's this garden theme and this wilderness theme. And the garden uh, 
also gets tied into the temple and tabernacle theme, and it gets tied into the city theme. And the garden becomes a city. The garden becomes the tabernacle and the temple, and the tabernacle of God is with men. And the, all that the garden was intended to be, all the earth will be through the city of God, the people of God, us, the new Jerusalem, that has come down in the person of Christ and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the new Jerusalem has descended into our midst. So, unlike the second, the first Adam, the second Adam passed the test in the wilderness. We would have no point of gathering here this morning had that not been the case. We might as well have just slept in. Or like all other Americans, we might worship the football altar or something. So, um, there's some scriptures along that lines, by the way, for you. First, uh, Romans 5.14 points out that Christ is the second Adam, as does 1 Corinthians 15.22 and 45. Uh, it's important that you understand the concept of Christ being the second Adam. That's why he calls himself Ben-Adam 38 times in the Gospel of Luke, the son of a man, which is a title from Daniel 7.14, uh, the messianic title. He is the son of Adam. He is the second Adam. He's the Adam that didn't fail the test. He's the Adam that restores all Adams and Eves to that which God always intended Adam and Eve to be. The, the journey of sanctification and maturation is just coming into harmony with your who you were created to be. The reason you'll have less uh, emotional pain and conflict and everything else over time is because he's restoring you to who you were always intended and created to be. Thirdly, running out of time, unlike Israel in the wilderness, Jesus, the true Israel, passed all the tests in the wilderness. So, yeah. fourthly, Jesus adheres to and fulfills the law that Israel repeatedly breaks. And interestingly, you always hear uh, pastors quote how Jesus used the word, the sword of the spirit to strike a heart. But I never hear anyone say that all the verses he chose were from Deuteronomy. That's really important because Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And he's saying Moses gave the law. He gave it again in Deuteronomy. And I am the completion of all that. I'm that, you know, like in good, in, in good literature, there's all kind of characters that are having character development and plot development and foreshadowing and so forth until you get to the climax. And he's saying, I am the climax of the law. That's why he rebuked the devil, quoting Deuteronomy three times. Very important. So, Jesus is Romans 10.4, the final giving of the law. Fifthly, the first trial was to, uh, of Jesus was to eat forbidden food. When food, throughout the Bible, food is given by God. Don't ever get, you know, that's why it talks about how in the end times men will advocate abstaining from food or King James's meats that God intended to, uh, for you to enter in joyfully. Food is always celebratory. It's always sacramental. It's always covenantal. We eat the covenant meal that God gave us to uh, reinforce, to 
uh, renew and, and to, to renew the covenant. Food is for celebration. I personally don't like situations where I have to eat with ungodly people. <laughs> I really don't. Now, I do. Jesus was, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I try to be good at it. Jesus was good at it. But, uh, but the truth of the matter is, like, we should really understand a lot more than we do. It's like you didn't just get a bucket of chicken. <laughs> you know, uh, Bradbury got me started on buckets of chicken recently. But uh, <laughs> uh, you... <laughs> Uh, I'll, need to, I'll need to bring forth fruit in keeping with my repentance this week. But, uh, <laughs> man, you t take a wad of paper towels and squeeze it and everything. It's like, oh, my God. I'm, I'm going to put that in my body? Okay. Uh, so it's just it's who you're eating with. You're eating in the presence of God together as a covenant people. That's why we give thanks and celebrate. So that, that needs to be kept in perspective. But there's a time and place. There's right food and wrong food. There's good food and forbidden food. You can't partake of Christ and partake of demons. You can't be into, like, the occult and witchcraft and anime and all kind of crud and be into Christ. You can't. Um, so Ad Adam... Uh, eats the forbidden food, Jesus refuses the forbidden food. First John 2 talks about don't love the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boast pride of life. Uh, boy, I'm not going to be able to finish. Israel rebels against Moses. Jesus rebuffs Satan with the rebuke used by Moses about food. Remember how Israel whined and complained, you brought us out here to starve and so forth. And sounds like having kids. Uh, but he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8.3. And Jesus quotes that in Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4, 4, word for word. And he purposely, as the new Moses, uh, is using the rebuke that Moses gave to the children of Israel to rebuke Satan himself. Um, boy. Let's keep going for just a couple more minutes. The second trial uh, is about false worship. Satan offers Jesus a shortcut to what Satan was about to lose and Jesus was about to take back because Jesus is about, Acts 3.19, the restoration of all things. Now, uh, Jesus answered, it, it is written, Deuteronomy 5.9, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him also. Combine Deuteronomy 5.9 and Deuteronomy 6.13 and you'll get, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus refuses the false geopolitical conception of the kingdom popular at the time he lived in and, in, and popular now. And he said, my kingdom is not derived from this realm. My, if it were, my disciples would be fighting and Revelation tells us the kingdom of this world not will become, but has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says uh, concerning what he was about to accomplish, now the ruler of this world is cast out. Now the ruler of the world comes, but he has nothing in me. 
When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, sin for this reason, and for judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. You have no reason to ever be under demonic influence or satanic influence and, oh, the devil did this and Flip Wilson theology. He was a comedian who used to say, the devil made me do it. Yet there's no reason for any of that anymore. Jesus stomped on his head beginning in the garden experience or in the wilderness experience of fasting. And he continued to stomp on his head through many events all the way to Pentecost. Now, uh, maybe I'll just start next week because of time with uh, maybe uh, keep this outline. I'm not going to reprint it, but let's see how many people could respect it, this enough. Bring this back next week, and we'll actually end this and, and go into the next one next week. Amen.